0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. On our second episode today, I have in studio with me Chris Hayes, the host of MSNBC's All In, which airs weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern. Hayes is also the author of a new book, which is called A Colony in a Nation. It's an examination of our criminal justice system and the ways in which it has warped American life. Chris, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, just to begin, what made you decide to use the framework of a nation and a colony to understand the criminal justice system?
1: You know, I think that the best framework for understanding the American criminal justice system, to the extent there is a single system, um, is actually as, you know, two different regimes. Um the nation, which is the regime that I think a lot of people of relative privilege and affluence um, and, and the vast majority of, of white people of, of various social strata occupy, which is you know more or less a country in which you have procedural rights, the guarantees of the Fourth and Fifth Amendment um, and basically a law enforcement regime like the one you would expect in a democracy in which um, the police are accountable in some sort of deep sense to to, to the democratic – Will um, and then you have a policing regime in places that um, like, you know, the south side of Chicago or the west side of Baltimore or in Ferguson, Missouri that I call the colony, which is a policing regime that looks a lot more like you would expect to find in a colonized nation in a occupation in a even sometimes a police state, which is a term that has a sort of special bite uh, because it it represents the fact that we recognize collectively the profound danger and potency of policing as a state function and there are huge swaths of the country in which that state function has developed into something that is really difficult to square with our basic democratic commitments
0: i think one thing that's interesting about the title and one thing that you talk about in the book but i was hoping you could talk more about is when we think i th- when i think when people think of colony and a nation they think that in some way it's not just there's inequality with the nation being better off than the colony, but that the nation is in some way exploiting the colony or using the quality you know, the colony for its own ends and so I was wondering how that you know the British are using totally, India right. for resources or whatever right. it is. so how does that idea play into what you're talking about
1: right so there's a there's a um, there's a long I, I should say there's a long intellectual tradition, particularly among uh, black thinkers and writers for years about the notion of internal colonization and Often the framework of that debate revolves around in these sort of Marxist categories about exploitation versus oppression. So, you know, oppression is um, when you just, you know, treat people poorly and persecute them. Exploitation is when you treat them poorly, persecute them, and expropriate from them, like take something from them, which is, of course, what the entire colonial system was about, whether it was in India, whether it was a forced labor in South America, uh, in, you know, the silver mines of Bolivia. So, there's a real question, right, about whether sort of post slavery. Uh, racial relations in the country are best represented by that by that metaphor. And for me, the reason that I use it is is there's three reasons. One is, yes, I think in certain cases there is a sort of exploitative expropriation that's happening. In a place like Ferguson, it really is the case that they make up a considerable portion of the municipality's budget through the policing function of nailing people with tickets, fines, and fees. And that Uh, Is money that they would have to get through property taxes or other taxes in other ways. And so they essentially use citizens who are caught speeding as a kind of expropriated resource, right, to fund the government. So that's one way that we see this sort of exploitative function. But – the real focus of the of the metaphor for me has to do with two other aspects of it. First, I think it's just the subjective phenomenological experience of it. And in some ways, it's an attempt to get people who don't experience the state in that way to think in terms that jar them out of the way they do think of it, which is So just, people who
0: feel safe calling the police or people who feel safe interacting with law enforcement in some way, to get them to think what it may be like if you don't feel that way. Is that sort of what yeah, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to think about the to, to, to think about the police or law law enforcement as fundamentally kind of outside the mechanisms of a government you control in some deep sense, right? Like that you you are you are faced with them in a way in which it feel it does not feel like there's any way in which you have any um you have any leverage of accountability over that individual. Um and then I think that the third way that, that I use the metaphor and, and, and relates to that is just the, our actual own colonial history, that actually the origins of this country was a rebellion against a distant empire and particularly a rebellion against the law enforcement methods of that empire, um, something that I tease out at length in, in the second chapter of the book. But the founders had strong feelings about policing. Extremely strong feelings. It's the reason there's the Fourth and Fifth Amendment um, is the fact that it was the policing function of customs officials that ended up being the kind of tip of the spear for the crown's interference into the everyday lives of colonists. And to go back and reclaim that history is to appreciate the degree to which we've developed a system that in certain deep ways would be viewed incredibly um, skeptically, if not with downright contempt, by – the founders themselves.
0: Um, right. I mean, things like equality could be viewed with them in, in contempt, too, as it turns out. But. Right. Well, I mean, the thing
1: is, right, the founders are complicated and they're they're complicated in a million ways, partly because there's no single founder. Right. <laughs> right. So they have battling conceptions of different things. There's different factions within them and different worldviews. And obviously, um, their views on race were on the whole, horrible, um, some uh, as a product of their time and some even over and above
0: what their time would produce, right? They went the extra mile. Yeah, so there like, were some yeah, who went yeah. the extra
1: mile. Um, but, but it is the case that you know the if you go back and you read Adam's writing, if you read even the Declaration of Independence, I mean, this is my favorite discovery in the course of the book is that there is a line in the Declaration of Independence that complains about police treatment. By Thomas Jefferson says of the king, he hath sent forth swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. That's a line about the cops.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, That
1: is a line about the
0: cops. Well, so let me ask, when you, the system that you're talking about, I mean, I, I think one of the things you're trying to do in the book, correct me if this is wrong, is kind of put a bunch of different things together to see how it operates in totality. Yep. Uh, so, you know, we may think about police shootings or we may think think about, you know, seizures of people's, uh, you know, making people pay fines yep. when they're arrested and so on. So I, I when you were reporting this book and thinking about it, What were the things that stuck out to you? Maybe not the things that we see every day, you know, unfortunately, every day in the newspaper with police shootings. But what about the totality of the way the law enforcement system works surprised you?
1: So there's a few things. One, I think that that what ends up happening, you know, the police shoot a shocking amount of people uh, in America. Uh, But. That is part of a much broader story. It's sort of like the snow at the top of the mountain and there's this whole mountain underneath it, which is just the number of police interactions that are happening, right? So you combine uh, an approach to policing that is very much produced by both the politics of law and order and the specific guidance of broken windows policing, which is a focus on order. You take all that and you produce a system, an approach to policing that requires – So many interactions between police and citizens because the whole idea is police should proactively intervene when they see a taillight out. They should proactively intervene when they see um, disturbances of order, right? That's the the way to be a good policeman in many ways. That's the way to be a proactive policeman. You know, what does Michael Brown – what does the Michael Brown interaction start with? Michael Brown interaction starts with him jaywalking. He's walking down the middle of the street. Now, I happen to have walked down the middle of the street with the mayor of Ferguson – a week later when we were doing an interview, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it was an empty street and no right. one stopped us, right? So the, the the point is that the the we we focus on the horrible instances in which this in which an interaction ends in something awful happening, a, a, a death, a shooting. But that in some ways is a kind of byproduct of a broader system and approach to policing that just requires a tremendous amount of these interactions. And the sheer churn of that combined with the uh, ubiquity of guns, those two things sort of added together, I think, ends up producing the outcomes that we see.
0: Um, The role of guns is interesting psychologically, the way you talk about it in the book, because it seems like guns function as both something that keeps people in the nation scared of the colony, but it's also people in the nation who are supporting these policies which have allowed the preponderance of, you know, or the prolific, you know, aspect of guns in our life.
1: It, it is amazing to, to go back to the history of the country and the gun because the gun is so central to America from the beginning. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a settler nation and they they have to you know, the they are constantly engaged in essentially warfare um, and, and sometimes defensive, oftentimes offensive conquering. Right. Right. Um, And the gun is a backstop. The gun is a backstop on the slave plantation um, against the rebellion of slaves and the question of who can and can't control guns um, is this sort of powerful and profound through line throughout the country's history. The place that we've ended up now is for – that inheritance means that the the idea that the final way to protect what's yours, right, the sanctum of the nation, right, the parts of the country that – are free and flourish from the possible invasion from outside its walls is the gun, right? The ultimate idea of a gun in the home to protect your family, right? Right. That's the sort of cornerstone. At the same time, it is the ubiquity of guns that produces in the psychology of a police officer the constant threat that any interaction, any argument, any disorder, any call you arrive at could turn deadly in a microsecond. And when I went through the police training in Jersey – that is the thing they're hammering home to you. And it's also not preposterous, right? Like it, it is both – It is it. they are both instigating a kind of paranoid fear in all police officers that every single interaction with a citizen could end up in them being shot and killed. And also it is not an insane thing to cultivate in a police officer because we have a nation with 330 people – million people and 300 million guns, right? So –
0: It's also the different way, right, that we see guns in different circumstances. I saw someone write this. I, I, I don't know who to quote on this, but someone said basically some person from the NRA had said essentially, you know, if you take your family out skiing or hiking, you want to bring your gun with you. And this person said, well, if you ask these same people, like, shouldn't everyone bring a gun to a rap concert? It will make them all more safe Then. The mental picture in people's minds of what that means completely flips. Right. Because
1: the, because the question of, again, in, in whose hands a gun operates is a question about which side of the sort of dividing line you're on and whether order or disorder is being, you know, uh, preserved the, the history, as as um, people will point out ad nauseum uh, on the Internet, you know, the history of gun control. Uh, is a pretty fraught one. It was Ronald Reagan not wanting the Black Panthers to you know bring guns to the steps of the state capitol uh, in California. So there is there is a sort of contestation of 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 the gun as a power of order or subversion.
0: Let me ask you this. Uh, you it's interesting that you decided to write this book because I think you would not deny that you're you're a me- I mean, you say this, but you're a member of the nation, not the yeah. colony. You host a cable TV show. You live in New York. You have very hip glasses, which I'm staring at right now. You're well, thank you. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, you're uh, you're you're definitely a member of the nation. You don't yeah. hide that. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm wondering sort of what made you decide to write this book and how you sort of felt like you were able to get in and write it given your position. Yeah,
1: to me it was very – like look, the book is not – there's – many of the things being written about this book have been written about by other people, right? So – and and there's both an incredible academic literature. There's a legal history. There are a lot – there are legal scholars. There are um, folks who have, you know, been through the front lines of this who have written about various aspects of this. The thought – the thing that I thought I could contribute that I hope the book does is I think there's been less focus on why the system was built by whom and for what purpose, right? So the sort of negative effects of it, the the notion of mass incarceration and uh, policing and police violence and sort of disparate impact and everything that, that that is written about in, say, The New Jim Crow, which is a phenomenal book, um, there's a whole corpus on that. Uh, to me, a big part of this book is getting at – the emotional – the political and emotional roots of why our politics have produced this specific system. And I think it's really important to view the system and and the sort of inequities in it and the way that it sort of preserves itself as byproducts of a kind of politics. And I say this in in the book that – there is no criminal justice system in the sense of there's thousands of jurisdictions. It's insane to think about the fabric of American criminal justice between federal government, state government, local governments, different law enforcement entities, different district attorneys, judges who are running for office, state legislatures, right? Like all of these things start moving in the same direction at the same time. The question is like what's propelling them? What What is the kind of emotional life of the body politic that is producing – the these policies and i felt like i was in a unique position having reported on it and having experienced it firsthand in new york city in in the kind of peak crime years um and as someone who has you know who 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 is living a, a life right now that is you know blessedly free of <laughs> of the kind of uh deprivations uh, uh, that a lot of people experience to sort of interrogate and introspect on what it is that that appeals to, quote, us, us, the voter, us, frankly, white voters.
0: I know you started this book and maybe even finished it before the election, um, but I, I'm wondering how the election has changed or heightened or anything about the way you see this issue. Um, and, and I'll follow up on that. Just You can take this as a two-part question, but one thing that you say in the book is that poor white people are increasingly – parts of this colony rather than part of the nation. And that does seem to fit into a lot of things we've been reading about the election. But anyway, that's too many questions, but
1: well, so I'll 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 do what politicians do and answer the one I want. Um, yeah, no, good. I'll answer them both. So in, in reverse order to the second one, I think that's absolutely true. I think that um you know there's a certain there's a certain kind of inescapability to race and the color line and what that does. But also at the same time, um, there are large swaths of white America that are experiencing a kind of decline in downward mobility um, and a sort of social unraveling, particularly right now around uh, the opioid epidemic. And what I think you've seen with the election of Donald Trump is that it was never really a technocratic or ideological phenomenon. It was more base than that. It was a an expression of a kind of fear of decline and fear of the other that sort of walked in tandem. And in many ways, the target of that has, has very sort of deftly been moved to immigrants and in some senses Muslims uh, away from, say, black inner city assailants, although they're, they're they're still there too. But it's the same formula. And so what you're seeing now is because those politics are the same, what emanates from them from Attorney General Jeff Sessions from the president of the United States and his executive order about crime is all the same old stuff um, about crackdowns and toughness and, you know, all that stuff. And so it's it really is a question about like that moment that we saw and we thought about and even all the empathetic rhetoric around opioid addiction. Do we have kind of the wherewithal <laughs> to kind of craft a new politics that doesn't come to the same conclusions as the old one. And the reason that's particularly to me both fraught and interesting is because the racial dynamics of, of opioids are so different and distinct than the narrative about, say, crack in the 1990s.
0: Well, I mean, you could look at it in a, in a you could put a positive spin on it and you could say the fact that you have white people going through these things now, like with the opioid opioid epidemic, means that we as a society are going to start, put, you know, reaching out a hand and providing more sympathy at the same time we also have a lot of poor struggling white people who need medicaid and you have their representatives are going to vote to gut medicaid so that's probably too optimistic to say well
1: that's the question right there's this there's a great book uh called harsh justice by james whitman who's a legal historian about sort of the ways in which the criminal justice systems developed in france and germany compared to the u.s and his sort of central framework is leveling up versus leveling down Um, you know his the basic thesis is that in germany and france you had sort of twin systems of justice you had know, a system for the nobles and a system for the commoners and the process of legal development was to level up the commoners to nobility which was to sort of grant procedural protections and sort of decent treatment to everyone and the US is sort of the opposite, right? There was never there was never sort of formally this twin system and the, and the instincts always level down and this is a real level up or level down moment, right? Like does the existence of the opioid crisis and widespread criminality – let's be clear, we're talking widespread criminality, right? When we talk about the opioid crisis, we're talking about addiction as a kind of medical and social and emotional fact but also as a legal fact of a lot of criminality – Does that produce a kind of leveling up in which we rethink the totality of the way that we say deal with drugs or deal with crime? Or does it produce a leveling down where we're going to watch politicians begin to employ the tactics used in the war on drugs in the inner cities in the 1990s in places like McDowell County, West Virginia?
0: Um, What's your worst fear about what the Trump Justice Department would try to do in terms of criminal justice policy over the next four years? Well, I think my
1: worst fear, I guess, my worst fear really with them has to do with voting rights, um, which is to say they basically remove the referee from the field. <laughs> and in the absence of a Voting Rights Act, they basically not just remove the referee, but they sort of send a tacit signal to every municipality uh, and state that wants to to uh, come up with all sorts of methods of targeted disenfranchisement. You know, from a, from a criminal justice perspective, I think it you know, i i I really worry about uh, what happens, what the reaction is if and when there is another high profile incident of a police shooting of a, an unarmed black man, for instance, in protests and whether the DOJ will continue to do patterns and practices investigations like they like they did under Barack Obama, Eric Holder, and Loretta Lynch. But I would also say a really important lesson, I think, that I learned in the writing of this book and for folks that are listening to this to understand is that criminal justice, the, the vast majority of criminal justice and criminal injustice happens not at the federal level. There's a tremendous power in the attorney general and you want them to pursue good policies as opposed to bad ones. But the routine grinding of this machinery is largely a product of local elected officials. Um DAs, state reps, city council members, mayors, etc., and so there's this sort of desire to kind of presidentialize all of it, put it, you know, put it in the in the context of these recognizable national figures uh, because we know the names of all those people. But but the reality of what happens day to day is much more determined locally.
0: One one thing about your book, you talk about how people sometimes like during the 90s, they believe crime is increasing when it's decreasing and that there's a psychological effect. Uh, what do you what generally do you attribute things like that to? How do you understand that?
1: So I think there's a few reasons for that. We we saw crime. I mean, just to set the context here. I mean, one of the key elements of the book is that when we talk about crime, we have to talk about the reality of it, which is that crime in America really did go up massively between 1966 and 1991 1992 um you know across all categories violent nonviolent in various different uh you know cities large and small etc and then it really did decline almost in the same sort of trajectory as its increase and during that decline the same politics of the increase got carried over. (laughs) So all of the politics that were developed in response to the increase get tough, mandatory minimums, you know, more intense policing, even as crime is going down, there's this sense in which like they're either seen as justification for the continuance of those policies, or they're seen as a kind of superstitious element that you have to keep intact. And so you end up in a situation where, um, all the politics are functioning as if crime's going up and when it's going down. And part of the source of that is that people believe it's going up. And I think a big part of that, frankly, is the way that crime has been covered. Um, you know, particularly in those years, in the 1990s, particularly in local media, crime, crime is covered in a way that would make you think if you just watch the news that it is more common than it is. It is you know what I mean? Um, it, it, it's not dissimilar to the way that we cover terrorism. If all you did was watch media coverage, and you were asked to come up with the, you know, uh, the threat of terrorism compared to, say, car crashes, obviously you would be wrong about that relative threat based on the coverage of those relative threats
0: we've now entered or the last 25 years, as opposed to the 1966 to 1991, 25 years, crime has broadly gone down. And so if from what you're saying, is there any hope that that means that going into the next period thing, you know, you're saying that they're kind right. of lagging indicators, right? So
1: and that's what I think. I think it gets back to the point you made before about this sort of moment we saw, I think, particularly before the election of Donald Trump, where we thought like there's There's this thaw. There's this kind of left-right coalition. And what we've seen since 2015 was in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests and in uh, consecutive years in which homicides went up, the homicide rate in the country went up, and we saw big jumps in homicide per 100,000 rates in some of the top 25 cities in terms of size, all of the old policies came rushing back immediately, like immediately. (laughs) And to me, what that said is, again – It's because it's speaking to something deep in the national psyche. It's because it's being cultivated a tradition of, you know, fear of disorder of the colony overtaking the nation of white fear, particularly a kind of weaponized white fear that changes its sort of forms and vessels throughout American history, that it's sort of always there as our inheritance, right? So you you have to kind of attack the underlying thing, because if you don't attack that and question that and think about, like, what full equality would look like, then you're sort of at the mercy of the statistics in a certain way, right? Like, <laughs> because if crime starts to go back up, which it very well may, because we don't actually have a good handle on why it went up and why it went down, we're going to just see an onrush of of all of the, the sort of bad old instincts, I think.
0: Changing subjects slightly. Yeah. Um, When you think about cable news, I'm not going to ask you about the media as a whole, but let's say cable news. How do you think that cable news has responded to the first few months of the Trump administration versus the campaign? Do you see changes on the whole trends?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think there's there have been some changes. I think I think people um, there's there's much more skepticism in official pronouncements and unofficial off the record pronouncements from the White House. Like, people just don't take things at face value. Um, I think towards the end of the campaign, that was also true, but it's been a sort of learning curve generally. Like, even on very basic logistical matters, the president will be here at this time. Uh, tonight, we're going to have a meeting on veterans affairs at the Mar- at Mar-a-Lago didn't happen like you just learn to be skeptical everyone has learned to be skeptical of, of even the most banal pronouncements whether official or unofficial on the record or off anonymous or quoted from the white house from the president so i think that's been a lesson that's sort of been learned um i think the other lesson that's been learned is i think it's not it hasn't been fully learned but i think it is in the process of being learned that like People need to get over some idea there's going to be some thing that does him in or some implosion, right? Um, I remember the coverage after the McCain comment about, you know, I like people that weren't captured. And it was like, he's done. It's over, obviously. That, you know, he is the president of the United States. And he is supported by 86 to 88 percent of one of the two major parties' voters. He uh, has – his party has a majority of both houses of Congress. And is probably about to nominate a – confirm a Supreme Court justice or confirm a Supreme Court justice. That's the reality of the system and the political reality. And I think that – I do think that's set in a little bit. Like there's a little more coverage of what I would call normal politics in a good way since he became president.
0: Well, it's interesting because your colleague, Rachel Maddow, last week I believe had – a scoop about Trump's tax yep. returns. And it was tweeted out about an hour before. And I think what you're saying about, what you're saying about there's this hope that there's going to be something that sinks right. him is what happened there because she eventually re- released the tax returns at like 9.15 or something. And it, there was incredible disappointment about the way it was the way it was laid out on her show. But I, I, I do think, I, do you think that the reaction to that was a sign that people just, fe- they want... Yeah, I think the reaction... Um, I know you're not going to criticize a colleague. That's fine. No,
1: and I also I'm not going to criticize her because I don't like I think that the the key thing to me about the story is that this got the story right. Like that was a front page story the next day in The New York Times, The Washington Post correctly for the right reason, which is that the documents were accurate. (laughs) And like, you know, you you have the president's old tax returns and they proved to be confirmed by the White House like that is news. The idea of like, quote unquote, disappointment, like there is some connection in that of some desire for there to be a deus ex machina among a certain portion of the electorate that's opposed to trump that he winks out of existence he you know he falls on his uh, face etc and that there's some something around the, the corner that will sort of do him in now again that's not a crazy thing to think in the sense that like Lord knows what's in the guy's tax returns and Lord knows what an investigation of the Russia stuff will reveal, etc. cetera. Like, so it's not crazy to think there's something like that. I just think that, like, from the da- one of the things that has shifted from the campaign to governing is that. Everything he does now actually has tangible impacts on people's lives, like if they pass this bill, people will get kicked off Medicaid when they signed the EO, people got stopped at the at airports and uh, couldn't go and you know reunite with family members <laughs> and so the the sort of tangible stakes of the actual policy of Donald Trump which was always so remote and abstract almost laughably so in the campaign cannot be remote and abstract anymore and that to me is is the biggest difference
0: the executive order brings up something which is that it feels like our blessing and our curse is that the people in the White House seem pretty incompetent. And I was wondering how you think about that, because at one level, they can't put very simple what should be, you would think, simple things like an executive order, however horrific, into action. And at the same time, if there's a nuclear crisis with North Korea or there's Ebola, the fact that their complete incompetence is terrifying. And so I was wondering how you think about their incompetence and what it means for the next four years.
1: You you sum it up quite well. I mean, that that's basically how I feel. Like well, I, I, I don't I,
0: need you here. We can, I, <laughs> I can just talk.
1: <laughs> I mean, I I think that I think that yeah. Like in certain senses, when they are trying to do things that I think are um, bad ideas, uh, it is it's heartening if they do them poorly enough that, that makes it easier to stop them. But it's also depressing and terrifying because, like, I mean, the thing I always keep coming back to as a as a sort of having had the Bush years as a formative experience is like is Katrina, right? Like. Governmental competency matters a tremendous amount, particularly in an emergency, in a crisis, which is bound to happen at some point, just the nature of the world we live in. And it just terrifies and upsets me to think about, you know, they said that that executive order was the most important thing, that they had to rush it out because it was so central to security of the United States. And they weren't able to dot the I's and cross the T's for it to pass legal muster. They overrode an interagency process that ended up including green card holders, which gave it a death blow in, in courts. And then they sat on it for two more weeks, including an extra day because the president's speech to Congress had been well received. <laughs> if that's what they do with something that that by their own definition and by their own lights is Crucial and centrally important to the security of the United States. I mean, they may be lying that they think it's crucial. I, right? Yes, they may, but I will take them at their word to the extent that that you know there's a real question of if and when we we face whether it's it's a nuclear standoff and nuclear diplomacy with North Korea or just something like an earthquake or you know there's uh, you know uh, uh, an oil spill, uh, a massive flood, some natural disaster. There's just a million things, a pandemic, like. There's a certain level of governmental competency that becomes so crucial in those moments, and I am genuinely spooked to consider what it means that they don't appear to have the wherewithal to handle something like that.
0: It's interesting because Steve Bannon, uh, President Trump's top advisor, who's uh, I think seen as the smartest person in the White House by sort of general consensus, has this idea about what he calls the destruction of the administrative state. And what's interesting about that is that it's it's interesting to see how that's going to play out for people in charge. It's one thing in a campaign to talk about the destruction of the administrative state, but when you need FEMA to do something and you're in charge, it seems like it's it's a much trickier proposition. You wonder how far they're going to push that.
1: Yeah, you really do. I mean, it
0: p- partially what what's
1: what's unnerving about that is the ways in which they can do it sort of by hook and crook. I mean, you know, there's the budget, right? So you're going to cut people's jobs, but there's also just morale in which you start losing your best and most competent people and you find it hard to replace them. And particularly for sending the signal from above, like, yes, we don't want you here, Mr. Data Nerd Climatologist at the APA. like <laughs> we, we, we don't want you to be here um, or we don't want you here, uh, Mrs. Uh, obsessed with the Constitution uh, lawyer at the DOJ. <laughs> like like the the scary thing is the idea that you essentially through kind of morale and you hemorrhage a kind of institutional memory in the place, even if they can't pull off a more frontal assault, which is their proposed budget right? Like that I think is going to be in some ways more difficult. but there's a lot you can do to muck with these places and they're functioning um, through these through the kind of like communication of contempt. Who wants to go work at a place uh, every day that that is, you know, viewed by the ultimate boss as, uh, you know, a a, a sort of fifth column (laughs) that needs to be like destroyed or or disassembled?
0: Last cable news thing. Um, NBC, for which for whom you work, has a very long, complicated history with Donald Trump, including, I believe, he's still an executive producer on an NBC show. Have you ever felt I mean, I, I know you're yeah. probably not going to criticize your employer, but I, I was wondering how you think about this and what you think about Donald Trump's long, strange history with NBC, Saturday Night Live, The Apprentice.
1: You know, it doesn't really factor into my life at all in, in the sense that it's, it's obviously something that exists, like he is an executive producer on The Apprentice, but also NBC is an entity that like makes um, The Apprentice seem so deeply remote from my day-to-day life <laughs> that it it doesn't – it just doesn't factor in at all. It also is the case that he has so many – he has over the course of his career had so many different like tangle relationships with different people, whether it's the wrestling world, whether it's Jeff Zucker personally who, who now runs CNN. Um, so it doesn't – it's sort of like the last thing that is on my mind or factors into the very difficult question of how to cover Donald Trump, which is hard for a million reasons none of which really have to do with that.
0: All right, Chris, last question for you on a little bit of a lighter note. Is it true you went to high school with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda?
1: Uh, it is true, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I um, I directed the first musical he ever wrote uh, my senior year of high school for the student-written play festival called Brick Prison Playhouse, and the play was called Nightmare in D-Major, and uh, I was the director.
0: Was he talented?
1: Uh, explosively and obviously from the very first second you encountered him.
0: Chris, thank you so much for joining me. The, uh, the show is All In with Chris Hayes, 8 p.m. weeknights on MSNBC. And more importantly, the book is A Colony in a Nation, out at bookstores now. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. I had a great time.
0: And that's our show for today. If you stick around after the credits, we're going to have a little bonus section of Chris and I discussing NBA basketball. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help on this episode from Mary Wilson. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Liktai. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and also take a few minutes to rate and review the show. I'd also love to hear from you. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. I will let you go, but I want to talk a little NBA before I do. Let's do it. It's kind of been a bummer of a season. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I disagree. Well, no,
1: it's been a bummer of a season for my particular rooting interests. Uh, You're you're a Bulls fan. I'm a Bulls fan, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, just to connect this to what's going on in America, this is a stretch, but this is the question I want to ask you, which is that one thing you've seen in the NBA, particularly in the last two years, is you've seen all these older players, from Oscar Robertson to Bill Russell to Charles Barkley constantly complaining about the NBA today with its three-point shooting and its lack of big men and so on and so forth. And I was wondering what you think this says about human nature. Now, that may seem like a funny question, but this idea that we Nostalgia,
1: make the NBA make great again. Right? Exactly.
0: And I was wondering, because yeah. I think both I think, objectively speaking, the NBA is in a fantastic place right now yeah, in terms of the quality of the game. Yeah. And so just like you could have said, objectively speaking, in many ways, America was in a better place yeah. than it had been in, in the past. And so I was wondering what you what you think of that.
1: Yeah, it's a good it's a great point. I mean, I think the, 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 the Barclay is sort of a great example of a specific kind of like NBA reactionary. Right. <laughs> where, uh, where it's it's like a it's like a reactionary kind of nostalgia. Um, and it's weird to, p- to use that term in it, but I, I don't, it's just like, it's, it's sort of tonally and aesthetically does, does share something with make America great again, right? Like it's got this kind of kids these days, you know, pulled your pants kind of feel to it. Um, I think that what it says about human nature is that yes, nostalgia, like fear is a profound, widely shared universal emotion that can be manipulated by different kinds of politics, particularly in different moments of crisis, uh, to very different ends. In the specific example of the NBA I am I believe I agree with you like the game has changed quite a bit. I understand people that played the old version of the game finding the new version of the game you know less satisfying unrecognizable not tough enough not you know uh but I think you know aesthetically as a basketball fan it's as much as I've ever enjoyed the league
0: but it's interesting I mean the 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 substance of the complaints if you listen to them I mean I don't want to compare Oscar Robertson and Donald Trump right but it is that you hear things like, you know, they aren't tough enough. They can't handle fouls. Right. People freak out over fighting. They don't let men be men, essentially. Right. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> they say things like, you know, now you see players and they go vacation together even if they're on different teams. In the old days we were we were fighting it out. We were we were real enemies. The the rhetoric is is kind of shocking. It's I, I also think it's I,
1: I it also seems to me just like that stuff just seems to me like an invention of people that are just like kids these days that just seems like kids these days like it doesn't even seem it seems like they're looking for something to complain about i mean i think the the game has changed a lot i think this idea that like they're friends with each other and we hated each other is just a i don't even know what to make of it because it doesn't seem to me that empirically grounded necessarily like i feel like it's it's making up a past that didn't exist a little bit um but also like you know the peak years of bad blood in the nba which was a sort of combination of the rivalry the, the bad boys of the pistons it was um, in the late 80s the late 80s and early 90s which which was both a period of like there were there were fights um there were uh there were these intense rivalries and the game was more physical and violent largely i think because of a you know a set of uh, both technical developments and refereeing decisions that allowed it to get that way um but also, like, I think the game is more true to the sport of basketball now than it was back then, in a weird way. In what sense? The ball moves around a lot more. Um, I, the, the Here's what I would say. The current incarnation of the game elevates the primacy of decision-making as the key beautiful thing about the game in a way that the tougher, more physical years did not. Because the ball can move more, because it doesn't get stuck, because hand-checking fouls get called, et cetera, because um, you've, you've got the court spread because of the three-point shot and its utilization, that you're watching – to me, the most beautiful thing about basketball is decision-making. Like Someone once made this point comparing basketball to baseball. Like, What would it be like if the best hitter on your team could just bat nine times if they wanted to? And at what point would there be like diminishing value to them taking taking a swing, right? And that's the way it is in basketball, right? There's no prescribed set of how how the shots are distributed. And so what makes a basketball player great over and above natural athletic ability and technique which everyone in the NBA has, is decision making ability when to pass when to shoot, when to move the ball in what direction when to make uh, the switch on the pick and roll and when to, you know, when to jump it, etc. and these constant instinctual decisions. And when the ball is moving as much as it is now, when the court is spread as much as it is now by that, you get a lot more of that on display than you do in, say, pounded into the post. So my own sort of aesthetic sensibility, like that's the thing I love most about basketball, and that is on the display the mo- much more than it was in the like rough and tumble years, the late 80s, early 90s.